Welcome back to the sound plays of Traversity, Demons and Demigods, book two of A Bridge of Doom. If you like what we provide, please rate, review, share, and follow on your favorite platform. Questions and compliments can be sent to our email. Go ahead, make my day. Though listening to these productions is free for you, providing them isn't free for me, as we are completely free of advertising. If you care to help, please buy me a coffee for a dollar via the coffee.com website listed with the descriptions of each episode. All proceeds go to the theater and our production material needs. Also, from this episode onward, on the coffee site, I will post updates on my production processes as they continue forward. Special thanks go to our first coffee angel, Juanita Paz Chalacha. Except those wishing to remain anonymous, benefactors will be announced in the final credits. And thank you truly for listening. Step through the gateway and enter the universe of the Harkin Theater. This is Episode 9. Chapter 9 The four men walked down several flights. Kaywan's senses prickled with foreboding, despite numbness spreading slowly from his bullet wound. The healing potion he imbibed had eased the pain considerably, enough to allow him to move around without much discomfort, yet the wound had not stopped bleeding entirely. He knew he would have to get help soon. Finding Marie before the warlock got to her was foremost, and he pushed concerns for himself into the recesses of his mind. Why didn't we take the elevator, Art? Call it paranoia, if you like. But I had some nasty dreams about elevators recently, and I don't want to take my premonitions, if you catch my drift. Art scurried around a landing. Two flights to go. Gaywan lingered behind the others, partly because of his injury, but also to sense the air. He allowed his psychic shields to ease in order to explore with his sixth sense. The tingling that greeted him was like that of a night wind warning of fell creatures lurking somewhere nearby. 
Grimacing with resolve, he found the others waiting for him at a metal door that bisected a landing. Art was peering into a small rectangular window set towards the side of the door. Gaewon, are you all right? For the moment. Paul's memory of how the Enchanter had been wounded was fuzzy, and somehow he couldn't help feeling guilty about it, that maybe the bullet had been meant for him. I was testing the wind, you might say. Gaewon steadied himself on the banister. I don't like what I feel. Paul found himself in agreement with his Enchanter friend, his own skin bristling with fear. Shall we continue, gentlemen? Everything looks to be clear on the last flight down. The walls of this lower section were concrete instead of brick, the sub-basement set underground. As the door closed behind Gaewan, he caught a glimpse peripherally of something, maybe a shadow, flitting down ahead of the others, and he was reminded of the invisible servants warlocks were wont to use as sentries. Damn! When the stairlight went out, all four men stopped. Glad I had my hands on the rail. Keep moving. There should be a switch at the bottom. Okay. Art continued down. Hey, no light switch here, guys. You'll have to feel your own way down. Paul, Bill, and Gaewan groped their way to the bottom. It is imperative we keep as much light as possible around us to ward off the unseen. My father taught me not to be afraid of the dark. A good thing, normally. As dark as only the night when all sleep, but... With all respect do your father, this kind of darkness feeds evil things, much as light helps us. Forgive me if I remain skeptical. The wonder of Gaewan's magic was already strangely fading in his memory. Keep moving! The sub-basement was dimly lit, the only illumination coming from a secondary light in the center of the corridor and the red glow of the exit sign over the four men's heads. You would expect them to lock up this late at night. Bill groped a hand over the wall for a switch. Nah, they leave the building open for research teams, residents, and grad students. Ye old midnight oil is a standard beverage around here, you know. Are these glowing runes significant? Gaewan inspected the sign overhead. Yeah, it means it's the only way out. Oh, spit. What? I found the switch, but it takes one of those weird keys to operate it. He tapped fingers frustratingly over the smooth metal plate. Ah, that's easy to rig. Let me at it. Art dug into his pocket. You have a key to this? Sort of. He eyeballed the thin slot, then selected a particular key and slid it into the switch lock. Isn't that your car key? <laughs> yep. It usually works this size. Oh. Uh. Voila! Okay, Paul. Let's find this room 002. Their search was brief, leading them around two corners of a large square lined intermittently with doors on one side. They arrived at the end of the long hall where stood two doors, one with the legend Janitor and 001, and the other with 002 and a strip of masking tape under the number plate with faded marker strokes misspelling out D. Brint's storage. I don't suppose your car key will open this one. Only with a sledgehammer. Marie, are you there? 
He pressed his ear to the door. Why don't we just call the campus cops? There's more than enough cause for them to assist us. Not a bad idea. I don't know how we'd explain everything that's happened tonight, but it's better than standing around here. 79, stand by. Indeed, I'm sure our esteemed officers will find your story most interesting. All four turned with dread to see Dr. Brent accompanied by two medical center policemen. These are the ones, officer. They smashed the door into my lab, assaulted me, damaged equipment, and now we've caught them breaking into one of my storage closets. Good evening, gentlemen. I am Bill Logan of Medical Security. Logan's piercing gaze belied his pleasant expression. His aura was cordial, but tinged with a no-nonsense approach to his job. He gestured his head toward the younger, crisply uniformed African-American behind him. And this is Gary Green, my partner. Dr. Brent has registered some serious complaints about you this evening. Before I ask you any questions, we will need to see your IDs. The hall lights glinted coldly off the brass name tag on his uniform reading W. Logan. The other officer stepped forward with a hand stretched out. Though his manner was casual, the mere appearance of both his and Logan's dark blue uniforms, intricately sculpted reflective shields, and fully equipped utility belts complete with, among other law enforcement tools, compact transceivers and holstered automatic pistols, presented a visually intimidating force. Dr. Brent waited with arms crossed and a crooked smile of self-righteous satisfaction as the three students dug into pockets and opened wallets. There was no attempt from them to question or counter these officers. It was common knowledge that, unlike the somewhat casual campus security department, the medical school and medical center police officers were of a class matched only by members of the state's special forces officers. Years before, an astute administrator of the university had observed how the expanding medical center provided an area where the campus society and the public mixed and blended easily, thus opportunity for theft of expensive pharmaceuticals and equipment of all kinds from offices and labs, in addition to the expected disruptions common with hospitals serving the general public. The resulting policy for countering this serious liability created a fully armed and empowered police department of high professionalism that kept the medical center and its school remarkably low on violent incidents or robbery. Any gossip concerning the infrequent disruptions in the medical school and hospital centered on the extreme efficiency of their police officers and how they handled those. Glancing uncomfortably at Gaywan, Paul handed his laminated photo identification card to Officer Logan. Brent noticed this and directed Officer Green's attention to the enchanter. Mm, what about him? Gaywan shrugged and smiled helplessly mm. when the man motioned for his ID card. Mm. Green gripped Gaywan's arm and pulled him aside. Please stand over here, sir, until we are finished with these students. All right, man. Logan's eyes lingered over the ID cards before looking up. Mr. Bach, Mr. Leonard, and Mr. Zadek. Would you care to describe your actions this evening? Are the professor's allegations true? Uh, not exactly, sir. God, how can I explain everything that's happened? What proof would I have? He found it interesting that Brent failed to mention the dead woman, Succuba. 
Were you in Dr. Brent's lab this evening, Mr. Bach? Yes. Um, yes, we were. I was. By his invitation. Hmm. Paul noted Brent's eyebrows rise in mute appreciation of his terminology. But we didn't assault him, nor did we mean to break anything. This conflict is between you and me and Gaywan. Paul wanted to say to Brent, You didn't have to bring these guys into it. You're saying you did damage something. Paul saw the judgment already in Logan's eyes. Guilty. Um, a few flasks, I guess. <clears throat> if I may. Logan blinked at Paul for a moment, then turned to Bill as he rechecked the cards in his hand. Yes, Mr... Mr. Leonard. We are looking for a missing student who may be seriously injured or sick. We, we were checking out the possibility that she may have accidentally been locked in a lab or perhaps in one of the storage rooms down here. We have not seen the student for several days, and we, we were concerned. Preposterous! You don't set fires and destroy campus property and a search for missing persons. He checked himself, appearing irate would only weaken his position in the eyes of the officers, and quickly considered the situation that had gone from bad to worse topped off by his frustration with medical security policy that all officers responding to calls for assistance must be accompanied by a partner, no matter the status of the call. This successfully squelched his original plan for psychically dominating an officer and having him outright arrest the students. I can't handle more than one at a time with lengthy domination unless my nameless servant was helping and she's dead. Worse, these men are more intelligent than a run-of-the-mill city cop. Being one of the best in the region due to its university ties, requiring its well-paid police officers comprehend an extensive knowledge of chemicals, drugs, firefighting skills, and violent patient handling procedures. Despite having called them to arrest Paul and his friends, Brent's plan was backfiring, partly due to Mr. Leonard's assertiveness in searching for a missing student, instead of all four men being immediately subdued and verbally vague in the face of legal authority. Now he needed the officers out of the way and away from this room. The next option was convincing the policemen of the danger of letting these young men run loose. Suggesting a serious crime might serve the purpose. Logan frowned with a glance at his partner. Huh, did you report a fire in your lab, Professor? Hmm, it was a very small one, easily contained. However, by destroying some of my records, I have no idea what chemicals I'm supposed to have stocked. I think they're part of a campus drug ring. From a pathology lab? Oh, sure. We can make a mint selling formalin, absolute alcohol, and stains for slides. Real big market. No stranger to medical equipment and chemicals, Logan raised an eyebrow, mm. a smile threatening to break his calm facade, but made no comment, apparently waiting to see where the drama would take them next. It is truth that we were in the professor's lab, officer, but anything that may have been damaged did not happen as a direct result of our actions. This is true enough. Presently ignored by anyone else, Paul saw Gaywan, still standing beside Officer Green, quietly shimmer to invisibility, something he wished he could do at this moment, thus giving him more truths to say. None of us here had anything to do with an attack on this man. 
much as he wanted to burst out with the terrible truth of Brent's occultism and planned murder, he decided it would be too difficult to explain. Perhaps that's why occultism is still considered a joke. How can you expect someone to believe all that mumbo-jumbo in this day and age? We're just looking for someone. As a matter of fact, you probably overheard us planning to call you for assistance in searching this room for her. Officer Logan turned to Dr. Brinth. If you want us to investigate these students further, detain them here and go see your lab office, Professor, we will. As it stands, however, unless you have proof of their alleged vandalism or their assault, uh... Just how were you attacked, Professor? What? Uh, I was punched in the face and then struck on the head. Of this particular fact, even Paul could not know, for he had been restrained on the table and unable to observe Gaywan's confrontation with him, yet he was sure the Enchanter would not have resorted to such vulgar action. He could have guessed Brent's choice, however, a blow to the head easy to fake. Logan gave Brent's face a cursory inspection while Green scrutinized the back of his head from where he stood. If he had any doubts, he didn't show them immediately. Mm, I detect some cuts, but they're clean. That might be a bruise. How are you feeling? Blows to the head can be serious, of course. Do you need medical attention? No. I'm all right for the moment. But I want these students arrested! Logan nodded, then with a subtle shake of his head exchanged a look with his partner, something tacitly passing between them. Despite your complaints, Professor, you haven't provided any tangible evidence against these men. If you wish us to pursue this matter further, we will have to detain you and these students in our base office until the city police can arrive and invoke their more comprehensive restraining powers and investigative techniques. This is ridiculous. They have lied. How do you know they wanted to look for a friend and not processing equipment for drugs? Back on that tack again, Doc. What sort of equipment are you storing in here, Professor? Logan was clearly getting a little thin on his professional patience. In here? Uh, oh, oh, some old tissue processors and a microtome, slides, nothing important. Just think of the stuff we could manufacture with that. Brinth remembered the fourth member of their party. What about this other man? What? He's gone! Everyone looked down the hall, Gaywan nowhere in sight. He must be the guilty one. He's run off! You're not positive of the identity of your attacker, Professor? Of course not. I was struck from behind. Go after that man! Gary, check the stairwell in the upper floors. Notify base of an unauthorized visitor, possibly armed, in the medical school. I'll follow in a moment. H2. H2, this is Wing Unit 11. Wing Unit 11. H2. We have a code yellow, possible code red in the green zone. Direction 09er. Please advise on fiber backup. Acknowledged. Who is the subject you were with? Him? Oh, he's just a visitor from off-campus. He doesn't understand our country very well yet. He was probably just scared. He's a friend of yours? Logan flipped open a small pad retrieved from his belt and began to scribble. Yes. From where? A small kingdom overseas, strange as it sounds. He and Paul are pen pals. Paul couldn't help smiling at his friend and patting him on the back, not aware that Bill actually believed this to be truth. 
international students and visitors a routine for the university and its medical researchers, Logan accepted this information at face value. Name? Gaywan. Uh, does he have a last name? Mr. Gaywan. Spell that, please. How does he spell it? Oh, well, phonetically is better than nothing. G-A-Y-W-A-H-N. Is he a registered visitor? No, sir. Sir, could you open this door and check inside for our friend for us before we go any further? Logan finished writing before looking up. Don't do it, officer. They only want to confuse the issue. I have confidential research files in there. He frantically sought any excuse. He had attempted to psychically dominate Logan, but the police officer had a strong will. Something indigenous to the better law enforcement officials. (laughs) And was presently focused on a task that was part of his raison d'etre and asserting authority. Unlike his surprise attack on Gaywan in Paul's dormitory room, Psychic assault is child's play on anyone when the intended victim is distracted, as Gaywan was, when he responded to the knock on the door. Successful domination of Logan would require a major mental effort capable of leaving Brent consciously unaware for several seconds initially, something he could not afford at this time. They've asked me to look, Professor. Unless you have some objection, I'll take a look. Uh. What's this student's name, and did you report her missing to campus security? Paul noted the repartee glance that passed between Bill and Art. We thought it would be best if we checked out what we could before we called you. Her name is Marie Ryder. He watched Brent's calculating eyes and worried at what desperate move he might be considering. Okay. Logan put away his pen and pad. Let's check out the room for you. He removed keys from his utility belt, fingered through them as he eyed the lock, briefly reminding Paul of how Art picked out his car key for the light switch, stepped to the door, jiggled two keys into the slots, then opened it. He released a small flashlight from his utility belt and shone the powerful beam inside. It was a small room, or a large closet, with shelves mounted on the walls, some loaded down with slide boxes, and a couple of rolling tables supporting dust-covered equipment. After swinging the beam around the walls, Logan aimed it at something on the floor, then reached for the wall switch with his other hand. There's someone in here. Immediately, Paul was at Logan's side, his heart pounding as he peered in, the fluorescent revealing a very sick-looking Marie crumpled up on the floor. Holding up a hand to prevent anyone else from entering, Logan stepped inside, knelt beside her, and checked her jugular pulse. She's alive. He lifted one of her arms that lay stretched out on the floor, the skin marred by many needle marks and bruises. What did I tell you, officer? She's obviously an overdosed junkie. Probably found the room open and hid in here. Unlikely. The security lock on the door was engaged with the standard lock. She couldn't have done that from the inside, only someone with clearance keys. And where are the needles she supposedly used? He aimed his light under one cart, finding nothing. Mm, She's been dumped here. Shoving Brent aside... Paul dropped to Marie's limp form, his eyes welling with tears, and ran fingers over her marked arm and her gaunt face, horrified at what had happened to her. 
Here was someone who had cared enough for him to follow him into an unfamiliar and frightening world. Heaven knows the place scares me half the time. Someone who loves me so completely, now laying on the floor, discarded, disheveled, abused, and worst of all, drugged. Anger, fresh and furious, surged through his veins. Then he felt the stare, the cold laughing gaze on his back, and he turned his head to meet Brent's satisfied grimace with his own wrathful glare. You bastard! The doctor smirked silently back. H2, H2, this is Logan. Need assistance? Sub-basement, room 002. Come in. H2. H2. Do you read? Over. H2. Logan stood and faced Brinth. I was just about to go off shift when you called, Professor. I believe the batteries in my radio must be too low for me to call out of this sub-basement to base. Stay here with the students while I call from a red phone down the hall for an emergency team from the med center. Of course, officer. Brent nodded, pushing as much as he dared against Logan's psychic resistance. You can trust me. An appearance of obedient compliance masking his dangerous glances with Paul. <sighs> Logan stepped through the others and started down the hallway while Bill and Art stepped into the room to help Paul lift Marie's unconscious form. Easy, easy, fellas. She, she's so limp we might injure her without knowing it. He fought back tears, wanting to hold her tenderly in his arms. What has he done to you, my love? Just as they shouldered her and were moving out, they noticed Brent had not stayed to watch them but had followed Logan. They looked to see Brent with a spent hypodermic syringe in his hand and leaning over the sprawled form of Officer Logan. He dropped the hypo and unholstered the cop's gun and faced the three holding Marie, staring in shock at him. He leveled the pistol at his new captives. Yes, now it's the perfect scenario. Violent drug dealers among the students on campus. You boys aren't fit for anything except federal prison. Stealing drugs, overdosing a woman, assaulting an investigating police officer. The evidence will leave no question about what happened here when they find your bodies. Now, we can do this another way if you prefer. I'll leave you alive to answer to the city police when they get here. If Paul will surrender. You're crazy! What about Officer Green? You gonna blow him away too? Psychically, yes. A little psychic manipulation of their memories. Something at which he was admittedly inexperienced, but capable. And I will come out of this smelling like roses. What's the surrender crap? Surrender to who? Terrorist? What the hell are you after? I can't believe this is happening. What would you believe? More bullet wounds? Believe what you wish, gentlemen. No matter how unreal my demands may seem, I assure you, this weapon is real. The bullets are real. And deadly. Let them ponder that for a moment. He glanced at his wristwatch. It was 9.44. Surrender, Paul. He aimed the gun at the unconscious Marie. Or she dies first. 
To hell with this. I'm running out of time. I'll just shoot Paul's friends and take control of him again. Suddenly, a sharp force struck his arm down. The gun hit the floor, a bullet ricocheting up and through the ceiling tiles. Guarding determinedly with his dagger, Gaewan appeared between the loose gun and Brynth who was trying to retrieve it. Brynth backed up slowly and considered the new situation. Possibly as much as three against him, one of the three being unknown in ability. How did he vanish and reappear like that? Some form of higher mind-clouding technique. No matter. The advantages were reversed, and he had to think of something fast. If only she hadn't been destroyed, she might have been some help. The time. He checked his watch again. 9.45, one of the calling times for Sakandra. It just might work. The fact of there not being a ceremonial pentagram available was, he figured, inconsequential, deducing from Sakandra's cynical attitude that the entity could be gated in anywhere when called by the right person at the proper time. That person is me, the chosen one, Maximilian Brinth, and the time is... He checked the second hand. He always kept its accuracy by the atomic clock. Eight seconds to go, just enough time. All it would take was a few moments of concentration, an extremely vulnerable few moments of mental introversion in which he would have to mock up the psychic gate in his mind, but he would have to risk it. Perhaps Sakandra can make use of a few more sacrifices. The fools! Art poised his fists. Let's grab him, guys! No, Art! Gaewan's blood chilled as he watched Brith stand very still with a solemn expression. The warlock doctor dropped arms to his sides and rolled eyes back into his head until he looked like a white-eyed apparition. He was summoning great forces to his aid, and there was nothing that could stop him now, for, while in that trance state, the subject was oblivious to anything done to his body. Too late. What do you mean? The hall lights began to flicker and fade. Oh, hell. What's happening? Gaewan had observed, from a safe distance, a powerful shade crier on his world go through the same motions, resulting in a demon calling. He's channeling a gateway. We must get out of here. There isn't much time. As one, all three men lifted Marie and moved as fast as they dared around Brent who remained motionless, and toward the opposite end of the floor where waited the stair, but before they made it around the last corner, all the lights were out, save the distant red glow of the exit sign. Keep going! Gaewan allowed them to pass by as he psychically probed the darkness behind them. The pitch blackness that stared back sent chills of energy and fright down his spine, urging him to follow Paul, his eye now on the runes glowing blood red, and he wondered if these symbols had been designed just for that purpose, a guide to safety in the dark. Ahead, he could just make out their silhouettes. How the hell are we supposed to climb the stairs in the dark? Let's just get out of here. The door slammed shut in their faces. Bill, this is no time for games. The door's locked. It won't open. Hold her, Paul. Art shifted his portion of Marie into his friend's arms. Uh, let me punch my ass into that panic bar. 
These things can't lock from the inside. No use, Art. We've got to figure something else out. Pale blue light washed over them as Gaewan released a small glowing sphere into the air above them. The two men glanced up at it with amazement, then at Gaewan, then returned focus to their immediate problem. The elevator! My bad dreams be damned. Why are we fighting this stupid door? Art marched further down the corridor and rounded the corner. God, I can be dim sometimes. Paul and Gaewan followed with Marie, the enchanter's witch light hovering above them. They found Art repeatedly pushing an unresponsive call button. Beam me up already! It's not lighting up! Damn it to hell! I was afraid that would be too easy. Paul tried not to jostle Marie in his arms. The darkness and the circumstance reminded him uncomfortably of his battle with the specters in the palace corridors. With frustration, Art pounded his fist on the call button, then stared at Paul with fearful knowingness. This is weird. Stairs or elevator or nothing. There is no other way out. Gaewan turned his head and searched the darkness back the way they had come. His skin prickled with unpleasant knowingness. Something evil from beyond, something that did not belong in this world, had been allowed entrance. Let's get away from this dead end. The stairs are going to be our best bet. You won't help with her, Paul? Lead the way, flyboy. Just get us out of here. Art was running back before Gaewan could caution him, possibly stop him from going first. He kept with Paul's slower pace, knowing his primary duty was protecting both he and Marie, though his wound ached worse with each moment. Bill! Get help! Hurry! I hope he was still out there. He may be waiting for us upstairs. He'll figure it out pretty quick either way. Sensing a change in the air, he searched the blackness ahead of them futilely, his body shivering slightly with the coldness, while in his arms Marie shifted. <sighs> At Paul's side, Gaewan, too, gazed intrepidly into the artificial night. The enchanter worried about his declining stamina. His light sphere was glowing blue instead of the usual warm gold, a warning that his physical energies were low, thus his power-channeling abilities were closing up. The chance of his survival in a clash of magic and power with Brynth, or whatever had been gated in, was getting slim, yet it didn't appear they were being given much of a choice. A cluster of red spears shot out of the dark. The sheer force of the magic slammed Gaewan against the wall. Deep shock, agonizing pain from his wound, and unconsciousness threatened to steal him away again as he fought to vent off the negative energy of the attack gnawing at his waning strength. But he could not resist the tidal wave of force and was slowly flattened to the floor behind Art and Paul. His dim ball of light winked out, leaving him and his three friends in the dim, ruddy glow of the exit sign. An eerie green glow limbed an unfamiliar figure standing halfway down the corridor where Brynth had been left in his summoning trance. Your time has come, four-time prince. Come, I will take you through the gateway to Fayek and your realm. Prince? 
Totally confused, Art looked between his friend and the silhouette. Prince? As much as Paul wanted to return to Fayeg, it was plain to him that this was neither the way nor the time. Before, his translation between worlds had been with light, but here all that lay ahead was in darkness. And above all, both Marie and Gaewan needed serious medical attention. No. What did you say? Still holding Marie, Paul looked first to Gaewan, who was lying on the floor, then to Art, who could only stare and gawk at the silhouette. Who are you? What did you do to him? My, what a forbidding noise you creatures make when cornered. The figure stepped closer, conjuring a spark of dark yellow flame in his palm, illuminating a devilish leer shining out of a dark countenance, his teeth and ears long and pointed, framed by jet black hair shot with electric blue. Humans of terror, do you wish to defy Sokandra, my prince? What are you? That would be telling. With a sardonic grin, he looked back to Paul, his pointed teeth looking more ready to gnash than to charm. Your answer. Behind them where he lay in a painful stupor on the floor, Gaewan's blood went cold as he caught a glimpse of the intruder. Drow, a dark elf, a being whose desires and purposes were exactly opposite of his gentler cousins who lived above ground among the things of nature nurtured by light. Denied by fair elves as nothing more than a frightening myth, actually an embarrassment to them. The drow shunned all light and hated all life except their own. Though rare for them to do so, when they came into the light, it was only to capture new slaves to breed and toil in their rumored underground cities. They were reputed to be fierce warriors and powerful warlocks, using infinite cunning with sword's edge and black magic to attain their nefarious means. He recalled Clough's tale of the drow woman they had encountered in the forest and wondered at what bleak future was being portended by these appearances. Then he remembered how Brynth had known of Mage Gaewan and felt fortunate Sakandra didn't know he wasn't one of the humans of Terra. Paul was still trying to comprehend such a creature, let alone consider his actions. Sakandra looked like something out of a dark fairy tale, though his aura warned of purposes more terrifying than any frivolous villain in a story for children. He wore a short sleeveless fringed tunic belted at the waist, a sash of purple across his shoulders, two evil-looking curved dirks at his side, and what looked like a small crossbow with a pistol grip hanging from his belt. His eyes glowed with an unpleasant yellow, as if their light fed off of some unimaginable malevolency, and his ears, below which dangled something that looked like human finger bones, tapered upwards in what Paul would have thought were an elf's. He had yet to meet one on Fayek, except this was unlike any elf he had ever dreamed of. Looking at Sakandra standing there with expression intent on him, Paul suddenly wondered why his answer was so important to a being that could, from the looks of him, commit murder as an afterthought, let alone take someone forcefully. Why? Huh. 
Sacandra's eyes were concealed behind slits as he seemed to gauge Paul's question. It was apparent he hadn't expected such a response, and his face tightened up in thought. The sight of those yellow eyes, half veiled in such an expression, made Paul want to turn with revulsion, but he didn't dare look away. The disturbing idea of one of those dirks sticking out of his back was occurring to him. More brave noises, human? I ask, because if you accompany me freely, all will be well. If you deny my request, then I must kill you. For Paul, this was different than fighting the specters which had lusted for Marie's blood, yet refused to harm him. Wanting hands free and seeing this creature wasn't about to leap at his throat, he decided to push Sacandra's patience and not answer immediately as he gently rested Marie on the floor beside Gaywan while moving his gaze away from that sinister visage, studying his movements carefully. Rawson! Rawson! Paul frowned in an instant of confusion before he remembered. The talisman of Rothson, the protector. Perhaps we aren't cornered after all. Except I have no idea how to use the device. But then, Sokondra doesn't know that. Art, you're more familiar with the occult. What do you suggest I do? Though Art's blue eyes fairly bugged out in consternation, Paul could see he had touched on familiar territory for his friend, as well as outlined clearly for him the situation. The fellow's expression slowly shifted from disarray to focus, and Paul knew that he understood. Deny his power over you. I defy you. His hand strayed toward one of his dirks. By what power, human? From beneath his shirt, Paul snatched the necklace and medallion. Rothson! Rothson is dead! Sikandra squinted and shielded his face from sight of the silver medallion as he moved back a couple of steps. But his power lives on! Paul was reminded of how a vampire reacted against a crucifix in a movie he had seen as a child and couldn't help feeling confident wielding his ward. You have no power over me! Peering angrily over his hand at Paul, the drow barked several alien words. Two hunched things lurked into view, knocking aside storage cabinets, their spectral outlines stopping beside him. Bodies twisted, bulging with sinew and muscle, heads horned, breathing hoarse and hungry, reeking of a need for living flesh. At the same time, Paul caught out of the corner of his eye a thin seal of blue light covering his body, and he wondered at what powers were possessed by Rothson's creation. Still fighting pain and concussion, Gaewan saw the conjured creatures and was reminded of the shapes he had seen lurking in the mist during his journey between worlds. Good God! Art felt as if he had met these things before. This is a nightmare! The two beasts calculated their quarry, a sharp, sulfurous stench stinging the men's nostrils. 
they lunged forth, and in the next instant, Paul and Art were backed to the wall, fighting off flying claws and fanged maws. The demon on Paul was thrown back by a burst of crackling blue fire. But before Paul could jump to Art's aid, the thing had grabbed his arms and yanked him back before it was repulsed again by the blue fire. Art struck away the slashing arms corded with thick muscle. Get away! The creature thrust its head forward and dug sharp teeth into his shoulder, viciously ripping the flesh to the bone. Blood splattered in all directions. White fire flashed as two sparks darted into the demons' faces, making an illuminated maelstrom of their features in pain, forcing them to back away reluctantly from Paul and Art. Both men scrambled back to where Gawan was sitting up, still holding his palm out for the enchantment he had just thrown. Are you all right? No, no. Gawan saw nothing but red. He was pushing his strength far beyond its limits. He knew he would be unconscious soon. God damn! What the hell were those things? With desperation, he held the gaping wound on his shoulder, blood oozing from between his fingers, while he watched the glowering face of the demon stare back as it licked its long teeth, savoring human blood. I can't feel my arm! Gaywan, can you hold them off until help gets here? No help. Except us. What about your crystal? Art remembered how the enchanter had somehow used it to subdue the succuba. Gawan closed his eyes painfully, thinking of the effort concentrating on the stone would cause, and he shook his head. No strength for it. With wound throbbing and pulsing deep in his gut, he leaned against the wall, miserable. In his contest of powers with Calron, he had been strong and prepared. Here, faced with a similar contest, he was frustrated with weakness and quickly eroding powers. Can I make this do something to stop them? Paul touched the medallion. Maximilian! Sacandra raised a hand, palm facing behind him. Brynth appeared at his side, looking like a Hollywood zombie. Eyes still rolled back in his head. Bring him! A terrific blast of psychic force slammed Paul's brain, brutalizing the synapses of his thoughts and numbing his body. At the same instant, there appeared behind the drow what could only be described as a rift in the fabric of the darkness, a vertical beam of greenish fire erupting and spreading, looking like some horrid mouth opening, revealing an inferno of shimmering green flames beyond. Intense heat poured into the corridor. Astonished and awed, his wound aching miserably, Art could only watch helplessly as Paul dropped hands from his medallion and began to walk dumbly towards the form of Sacandra retreating through the gateway while Brent stood to one side, looking like an insane sentry. The two demons kept a wary guard and bared jagged teeth. Gaywan, What's happening? Stop him! The enchanter could only watch in stupefied silence as everything he had tried to accomplish was being destroyed by a lone drow with a warlock servant. The demons shifted aside to allow Paul room to pass. No! No! Gawan tried to stand, but the drain on his ebbing strength brought more red flashes to his field of vision. When it cleared, he was kneeling on the floor, staring ahead. 
Art was frantic, forgetting to hold his wound. We've got to do something! What is it? A gateway. I... I can't do anything. No energy left. Can't stay conscious. A gateway? How? To where? Art glanced at him, then back at Paul. His friend was now half the distance to Brent in his slow trance walk and still moving. Sacondra was now only partially visible, standing with one leg in the corridor, the other in the gate. Channeled by powerful magic. Can't we counteract it somehow? Amidst the flashes of blackness and consciousness, Gawan mused over the interminable energy that Art exhibited, despite the lad's deep wound, loss of blood, and useless arm. He wanted to shrug this thought away and surrender to the blissful sleep of ignorance that tugged at him so hard, but the thought was insistent, nagging like a flea bite. Art's energy. This unknowing student of invisible phenomena and his energy. Then it struck. (sighs) Channeling energy. Art. Art. He called his way back to wakefulness. We can do something. He wanted to speak clearly, but his words were slurred. Art seemed to understand anyway and knelt beside him. Let me lean on you. The fellow nodded and with his good arm tugged the enchanter to his feet. Gawan couldn't help but rest all his weight on him. He knew he would not last very long. Before them, Paul had stopped face to face with Brynth, his body shaking as he struggled against the psychic in a battle of wills. The shimmering green light became almost tangible, rippling the very walls of the corridor, distorting them, changing them. A different environment intruded vaguely upon the sterile cinderblock hallway, that of flagstones at their feet flickering torches to both sides and a distant archway beyond which a wall of crimson fire danced. What now? Art blinked at the wavering image of hell encroaching on the reality he knew. The both of them were drenched in sweat from the interminable heat washing over them, and he was finding it hard to keep a grip on the enchanter. Knowing he didn't have time to explain, Gawan put all his effort into speaking clearly. Open your feelings to me. How? When when you helped me from the floor in Paul's room. He stopped to swallow again, finding he liked the taste of his blood. Like how you felt then. I was... I was concerned, I guess. How will this help Paul? Don't ask. Just open yourself. Gawan realized at the same time he too would have to open himself, which involved taking all restraint off his wounds and pain, and hope a crutch would catch him, like throwing oneself off a ledge and praying there's water below to soften your landing. Then he felt the tingle of energy begin to trickle into his sphere as he fell. It was working. There was water below. That's it, Art. That's it, Art. Think of me as a love brother. The tingle expanded into a flood of warm power. Gawan released himself and his pain completely. He plummeted through the air and just when he expected to be smashed, he landed on his feet.
Dumbstruck and unfeeling, Paul stood before Dr. Brinth and the partially visible form of Sokandra, a black clawed hand groping through his mind, touching and twisting his thoughts, seeking the necessary controls. Remove his talisman! The doctor's eyes rolled down to normal, and he glanced around him with a pleased grin. Sakandra was impatient, however. Remove it! No! Suddenly, the space between Paul and Brent was divided by a rising wall of golden fire, preventing any contact. Meddling fools! You only caught your death! The fell creatures moved again for Art and Gawain. Numb to their plight and somehow glad their interference would soon be ended, Paul stared into the hypnotizing green light that seemed to offer protection from this violent world around him. Do something, Gaywan! Art trembled, the memory of the razor teeth ripping into his bleeding shoulder, stoking up his panic. The demons stalked them slowly, considering the best approach for the kill. Torn between defending them or stopping Brent and Sukandra, Gaewan could only hold himself motionless. He only had energy for one more enchantment, if that. Art's dread was shutting off the energy that had gotten him this far. Someone is going to die. And then a heat more intense than that of the gateway burst at his side where his dagger was sheathed. Out of nowhere, a thin beam of gold light shot down from above and struck the floor in front of Art and Gaewan. A terrible form appeared with a shout of battle, his shining sword flying, finding targets in both demons. With the fury of a disciplined warrior, he swung and cut deftly and fiercely, turning the demons aside from their prey. The horned things backed away. Maximilian! Sizing up the situation quickly, Brent pulled the policeman's gun concealed under his belt. If we cannot have you, then they will not have you either. He took aim at Paul's gut. Take off your necklace and come with us. Nothing can protect you from bullets. Behind him, Sikandra aimed his pistol grip crossbow back at the enchanter. Paul! A bright streak flashed past Paul and Brent and into the glowing green gateway. A ball of green and gold fire detonated. The ceiling dropped. Art and Gawain watched as the two demons fled from Cluck's sword and tore into the falling metal and tile, their tortured shrieks fading through the closing gateway. The last flying embers of magical fire illuminated the falling paneled ceiling, the massive metal framework descending onto Paul and Brent. Within moments, the only light in the collapsed corridor gleamed from the sword in Clough's hands. The elf lowered his weapon and turned to face the two men. Gawan could only nod recognition as he still clutched Art's good shoulder. The young man gazed in wonderment at this godsend who looked, to his unaccustomed eye, like a reverse of Sukandra. Seeing only the enchanter, Clough held his sword up in salute. Forget not the wisdom of the dragon. Gawan's consciousness flickered in and out from the increasing misery of his wound and exhaustion as he struggled to find a reply or words to his questions, but could only nod again in understanding. 
Clough's image winked out, leaving Art and Gaewan in the tomb-like silence and darkness of the partially collapsed sub-basement. Help had arrived. Uh, the weight on Art's shoulder eased as Gaewan slid to the floor, unconscious. Gaewan, are you okay? Art leaned over to check that Gaewan was still breathing, then minced his way across the wreckage on the floor toward where Paul had last been. Powerful beams of yellow light cut through the thick dust and darkness. Good God! Bill stepped in behind the police and paramedics and swung his light around the wreckage. What was that explosion? What's happened to them? He's been shot in the stomach. She's been heavily sedated. He aimed his light into the collapsed portion of the corridor. A police officer has been sedated as well. Somewhere down there. Logan, are you all right? Logan? Bill! What? Help me! Both men ran into the wreckage where they found a bloody Art frantically flinging broken tile and metal with his good arm, trying to plow his way into the rubble of the ceiling. Close under here! Ah! More light filled the damaged hall as additional men arrived, looked around in amazement, then started digging into the destruction. Demons and Demigods, Part 1. Sound plays of this second novel were written, recorded, directed, mastered, and produced by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Copyright 2024. Character voices for Episode 9 are performed by Kevin Norris, Matthew Zachariah Tunai, Arthur William Bloxham Jr., Geraldine Cummings, Richard Hammer, and H, the Great and Powerful. The Sextology of Novels are available through Amazon.com, on Kindle Books, can be ordered at your favorite bookseller, or can be purchased directly from the author. Merely submit a request to our email. The wonderful music for this episode of the Harkin Theater was composed and performed by the ensembles of Evan McDonald, Mocha Music, Chris Haig, High Street Music of London, The Tenacious Orchestra, and licensed by PremiumBeat.com. Public domain music performances are licensed under Lieber Lieber Creative Commons. Sound effects and original foley provided by freesound.org, sounddogs.com, mix kit of Victoria, Australia, Cusp Studios, and the BBC Library. This was recorded on location in the universe.